Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. Jude, the book of Jude. Chapter 1, that's the only chapter um, in the book of Jude. I think I am. I am. All right, the book of Jude. We're only going to be looking at the first two verses of the book of Jude. So let's read our text this evening, okay? Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. This is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we praise you for this day. We praise you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have as believers to come to your house and learn of you and worship you through the preached word and through uh, singing. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless this part of the service. Lord, I I beg that you would help me to uh, teach your truth clearly, humbly, um, and with love for these people. And may it please bless thee here this evening. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Introductions. Introductions are always fun. Introductions, if uh, oftentimes you get the first impression of someone by an introduction, by their introduction uh, of themselves to you, and you get the first impression. Jude, um, in this book, lays out for us quite the impression in his introduction. In his introduction, Jude explains who we are in Christ who he is in Christ, and I think that it's very, very um, uh, applicable for Christians to know these great truths. For anyone who knows the book of Jude, they, they know that the, the common theme in the book of Jude is apostasy, um, and without question, the greatest threat to the church is that of false teaching. Uh, The thing that hurts the church the most does not come from without, but comes from within. Many a time, people focus on the outward persecution. And though while uh, Christians do face religious persecution and the world's animosity to certain things that we do, and that's certainly not fun, but for a faithful church, persecution from without does not hinder, it only grows. It only purifies. It only strengthens the true church. For a true church, persecution does just that. So our greatest harm as the church does not come from without, but it comes from within the church. And it comes from within the church in the form of false teaching. This is not blatant, it's not obvious, but false teaching invades the church subtly and very clever. False teachers, they prey on innocent minds. They prey on simple minds that are innocent in this fact, and they prey on those to uh, widen their bank account and to greaten their fame. To be aware of these false teachers is the theme that's all throughout Scripture, and it is the theme of our book. This is what cripples the church, false teaching. 
The damage caused by false teachers is of eternal consequence. And that is why Jude is so earnest in his plea to these believers whom he's writing to, to beware, practice discernment, and watch out for false teachers. Isn't this what Christ said in Matthew 7.15? Beware of false teachers, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Acts 20, 29 through 31 says something similar. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn you, every one night and day with tears. Notice what Paul says in that second verse. Also, of your own selves shall men arise. False teaching and the danger of false teaching does not come without, it comes from within. This is what makes it so clever. This is what makes it so subtle. This is why they have sheep's clothing on the outside. They look as if they're all of us, but on the inside, they're ravening wolves. This is what the scripture says when it says the devil comes as an angel of light. He appears to be innocent. He appears to be right. He appears to be orthodox. But this is what false teachers do. They'll mix in with their falsehood truth. We all know this. They'll say things that are orthodox. They'll say things that everyone agrees on. And that makes them subtly um, accepted amongst Christians. Because they say the same things we do. They talk the same way we talk. But subtly and very cleverly, they slip in falsehood. Falsehood such as, Jesus loves you. We all know that. That's true. But also, send me $3,000 if you want to be blessed. And they suddenly slip into that. Jesus loves you. Here's a common one of our day. But unless you, and this is so prevalent in our day, Jesus loves you, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, penal substitution, propitiation, all these things, they believe all these things, but subtly and very subtly of our day, if you don't address the social issues of our day, you're not giving the gospel. If you don't address social issues, issues of racism, issues of these things or that, if you don't address those, you're not giving the true gospel. This is a falsehood that has pervaded the church of our day, and they do it subtly, oftentimes, sometimes, as far as the latter, with good motives. But it's false. The gospel is a certain message, a very precise message, and it mustn't be added to or taken away from. And if you tell someone that if you do not address the social realms of the day, you're not giving the gospel, you are telling a falsehood. Listen, racism is a sin. It's a grievous sin. The gospel addresses that, and you don't need to address it, and you don't need to bring in social things in order to give the gospel. You give the gospel to someone, and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit will deal with any and every sin that is in that person's heart. 
political, social things, leave it out of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to die save to came to die to save sinners. That is it. Nothing more, nothing less. That is just one example. But falsehood and false teaching pervades the church in many forms. Very cleverly and very sneaky. We need as the church to practice discernment. Be on guard. Watch for these false teachings. And if they come your way, don't even give them the right hand of fellowship. Don't even accept them. Give them the gospel, yes. Don't be around them. Don't listen to them. Don't welcome them into your home. Give them the gospel, but give them the gospel with discernment. They're not your brother. They're the mission field. It invades the church. This is what Jude is seeking to do. He's seeking to expose and expel false teachers of his day. This is the theme of the entirety of Jude's epistle. And we want to delve into that. And I, um, we're not going to be able to get very far uh, this evening, but I want to get as far as I can. We want to look first and foremost at the person. The person. We want to know who Jude is. Who is Jude? So let's look at the first part of verse 1. Jude, the servant of the Lord and brother of James. Jude, the servant of the Lord and brother of James. Before we can examine the truths of this book, we must first know the author himself. So Jude is a very common Palestinian name. Uh, you could say it's Judah in Hebrew and Judas in Greek. But we know him as Jude. In the New Testament, uh, it lists eight men who are by the name of Judas. Yet eight of the eight mentioned, only two are associated with a person named James. Hence, the two plausible um, Candidates for the author of this book are the Apostle Jude or Jude, the half-brother of the Lord. So these are the two plausible candidates. The Apostle Jude can be ruled out, as we know, he was the son of a man named uh, James. He was not the brother. Also, our author, uh, Jude, never identifies himself as an apostle. He never does. In fact, he actually distinguishes himself from an apostle in verse 17. In verse 17 of Jude, we read, Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he distinguishes himself from the apostles. So this is not Jude the apostle. So therefore, the, Jude, uh, the James that Jude is associating himself with is James, the brother of Christ the leader of the Jerusalem church, and the author of the epistle James. So our Jude here is the half-brother of Christ. Little is known about Jude. Uh, according to 1 Corinthians 9.5, he was married. He had an itinerant ministry as an evangelist. Like his other brothers, um, such as James, he rejected Christ as Messiah. He rejected the deity of Christ until after the resurrection. 
We read that in John 7, 3 through 5. His brothers therefore said unto him, Depart, he, uh, depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he, seek, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou doest these things, show thyself to the world, for neither his brethren believe in him. Jude, along with the other brothers, did not accept Christ until after the resurrection. But after the resurrection, he, along with his other brothers, were converted to Christ. We read that in Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus with his brethren. After the resurrection, Jude, alongside of the other half-brothers of Christ, were converted to Christ. So now, for Jude, along with his other brothers, the relationship with Christ has changed from brother to Messiah and Lord. Um, critics, as they always do, have raised questions as to the, the legitimacy of Jude, the brother of James, being the actual author of this book. They claim that there is internal evidence that the book was actually written after the life of Jude. And so they raise this. And it's true that we don't know exactly when this epistle was written. Um, people who deny that Jude wrote this book usually put its pinning in the second century. And that's a problem, considering we uh, believe it to be in the period between 68 and 70. So this is a problem if it's in the second century. To support this, they say that Jude, in verse 17, of which we also already looked at, speaks of the apostolic age as long since gone. And also that the type of false teaching that Jude fought against was that of second century Gnostics. So they, they use this twofold argument. But as we saw in verse 17, Jude is merely suggesting that most of the apostles, if not all but John, had just died. He never alluded to the fact that they had long since passed. Again, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's speaking of them in the past since, but not having been long since gone. In fact, in verse 18, Jude implies that some of his hearers, some of the ones that were to read his epistle, actually heard the apostles themselves. In verse 18, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. So by this, we can gather that the readers of this epistle um, were not um, that the apostles, rather, were not long since gone, but that the readers of this epistle actually could have heard the apostles. So this does not put the apostles far away. This actually puts them rather close. Um, there's no evidence also that Jude was fighting second century Gnostics. Um, among Gnostic teaching, just to throw this in here, is the teaching that Christ was a created being of God and that salvation was attained through secret, hidden knowledge that only was revealed basically internally. internally. It was also a dualistic um, teaching that there was some sort of an evil spirit of God and a good spirit of God, that the evil spirit of God created the material world and all of the evil therein, and this good God and this evil God are butting heads, if you like. That is what Gnostic teaching 
believes. But there's no evidence that Jude was fighting this. In fact, Jude never went so much into all the nuances of the false teaching that he was combating. He rather actually attacked their godless life. He attacked their um, lack of piety. And also there is confirmation of early church fathers that tells us that Jude was written earlier than the second century. And as I said, Jude was most likely written in the period between the death of Peter and the destruction of Jerusalem, which would put it in about the time of 68 through 70. Roughly, we don't know exactly. The exact audience to whom Jude was writing to, it was unknown. We, we don't know. Some scholars feel that it was written to the church at Asia Minor, which was uh, what Second Peter was directed to. And if you read Jude and Second Peter, you can actually see the very similar uh, wordings and the very similar things that are in the two books. Actually, people believe that Jude uh, drew from the book of Second Peter in writing his epistle. That's how similar they are. So some people believe that Jude was written to the church at Asia Minor. Others feel like it was written to believers in Palestine. Regardless, Jude's choice of Old Testament illustrations and uh, reference to the Jewish Apocrypha indicates that his readers were predominantly Jewish, so we know that. And we do, however, know that whatever the church Jude was writing to had been recently plagued with false teachers. That's what we do know about this church. We also don't know where Jude was exactly where he penned this. As I said, he was an itinerant minister. He did travel. But since his brother James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, it's possible that was his sort of home base. As you know, evangelists always have some place to come back to. So it's possible that Jerusalem was his home base. And if that is uh, possible, it's probable that Jude was written in Jerusalem. So all those introductory marks aside, to introduce more to the person of Jude, let's look at how he describes himself. Um, even though Jude was a half-brother of Christ and a witness to the resurrection of Christ, Jude humbly refers to himself as simply a servant of Christ. This indicates the fact that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ had changed his heart. He went from being an unbeliever to being a doulos, or a slave of Christ. One who trusted Christ as his Lord and Master. In the Greco-Roman world, slavery was widespread, making Jude's designation of himself as a, as a slave, that was a very common thing. The people could instantly pick up on that. So when uh, Jude referred to himself as a slave, they knew, a uh, slave to Christ rather, they knew that Christ was his master, he was his slave, and that Jude was now serving holy Christ. Being a slave denotes the idea in this time period of being owned and offering complete, unreserved, devoted service to your master. Oh yes, by the way, biblically though, the form of slavery was you were merely a, a part of the family. You were taken care of, you were clothed. In fact, if you know from the, pro, uh, the story of the prodigal son, um, you can learn that in that parable, the son refers to the slaves as being in better condition than he was. The slaves were taken care of. Slaves were a part of the family in the Greco-Roman world and in obedience to scripture. So this was a very common thing. And this is what Jude refers to himself as, a slave to his master, 
the Lord Jesus. This also sets Jude in stark contrast to the evil false teachers he was seeking to fight, who blatantly rejected the concept of the Lordship of Christ. We also must note here that Jude's designation of being a slave is also shared by the Apostle Paul, it's also shared by his brother James, and it's also shared, listen to this, by every person who claims the name of Christ. If you're Christ's, you're his slave. Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then speaking to us now, Paul says in Romans 6.22, but now being freed from sin and becoming servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Matthew 6.24, no man can serve two masters. For you will either hate the one and love the other, or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and manum. You are going to serve something, either your sin and its lust, or Christ and his ways. But you're always a slave. You're never your own. You're always a slave. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 play, uh, shows us just that idea. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which ye are in, which ye have of God? Ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own person. You're not your own man. You're not your own woman, but you belong body and soul to your master, Christ, who is your master, you being his slave, if you're in Christ. You're not your own. There's no such thing as we see in Scripture as having Christ as Savior and not having him as Lord. They're inseparably connected. If you have him as Savior, you'll have him as Lord. There's no such thing as one claiming to be a Christian and yet their life is not governed by the Lordship of Christ. It's impossible. If you're a Christian, you're a slave. He's your master, and the commands of your master is now what governs your life. There are also to be no competing authorities, but if you're in Christ, you belong wholly, body and soul, as I've said, to him. And this is what Jude identifies himself as, a slave to Christ, a doulos. No one special, just a slave. I'm no one special, just a slave, just a servant, saved by the grace of Almighty God. And we offer this service gladly because what else can we do? What else can we do? So we see the person here. He's a slave. And we are slaves. Now let's look at the position. So we see the person, Jude identifies himself and likely us as slaves. And now let's look at the position. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, verse one, and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and are preserved in Jesus Christ and called. 
Jude is now transitioning now from introducing himself to now pointing to his audience, and he offers a threefold description of his audience or believers as a whole. The things that Jude is now pointing out describes every believer in Christ. He describes the Christians he is talking to, and in so doing, as I've said, he describes every believer. And how does he describe those believers and thusly every believer? One, we are the beloved of God. The word sanctified here in our text is from the Greek word agapeo, and we all know that is the Greek word for love, and you could say beloved. We are the beloved of God. So what Jude is telling us here is that the church to whom he was writing and also every believer is the beloved of God. We are objects as Christians of God's divine love. This is a verb and it's speaking on which God is acting upon us in his love. God is actively loving us, poor, wretched as we are. He actively, by his grace, by his mercy, lavishes his love upon his children. The human heart has no capacity to fully grasp this love. It's foreign to us. In fact, John says just that in 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knoweth him not. If you, look, if you were to look in 1 John 3, 1, that phrase, what manner of love, could be said, how great. And it's from the Greek word pot- potipus, which originally meant from what country. So John is literally saying, from what country has this love come? which brings the idea that this divine love that God has for his children is a love that is foreign and unknown to us. It comes from outside of us. It comes from a place where we know not. It's foreign. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. It is unknown and foreign to mankind. You can't comprehend the love of God in Christ to his children. That's how great his love is. This is why we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Because his love is vast, it is deep, it's foreign to us. We don't love this way because we can't love this way. Mankind knows nothing of this love. It doesn't register with them. It doesn't click in their minds. We did nothing to gain this affection. In fact, if, if you're like me, you did everything to invite wrath. You did nothing to merit love at all. But in his grace and in his gracious purpose toward us, he displayed this love. Out of this unfathomable love comes the wondrous mystery That is the gospel. 
that God the Father, seeing our helpless estate, would send the Son, take on human flesh, truly God, truly man, live a sinless life of perfect law-keeping in our place, actively keep the law, die the death of a lawbreaker in our place, passively taking the, the wrath of a lawbreaker, bear the infinite weight of the Father's holy wrath that we so beautifully heard this morning, suffer and die all of the agonies of hell were poured out on Christ, on the cross. Satisfy God's wrath for sin, die on the third day, rise from the grave, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating hell, accomplishing salvation, forgiveness, full and free for anyone who repents and believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is merely an act of divine love. Love is what purposed the gospel. It is an act of love. To display this love towards us was all of him, all of him, and had nothing to do with us because we did nothing to merit the love. Nothing. People don't love strangers. They certainly don't love their enemies. But while we were estranged and while we were enemies, God-hating enemies, Christ died. Christ died. God is the very definition of love, and Christ is the very personification of love. Words fail, and I'm actually angered at my finite, dumb mind that can't rightly describe this love. You, I can't. If you've heard anything tonight... Know that the love that God has for you is indescribable in Christ. We hear so much of the love of God that it, it, if people, they've so overused it and they, they so unbalance God's attributes that if we hear of God's love, often we tend to um, shriek a bit because we don't want to be one of those. We don't want to be one of those who... Uh, weighs too heavy on the side of God's love and doesn't include all of his attributes. But really, if there was ever an attribute of God to lead one into a lifetime of piety, it would be the love of God. It would be the love of God. Romans 5, 8, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. 1 John 4, 10, herein is love. You want to know what love is? Here it is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Finally, Romans 1.5, to all that be in Rome, be loved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just scratching the surface. I haven't even touched it. I haven't even touched it. But do you understand this? Listen to me, please. You are loved by your Father. You're loved. So when the devil condemns you, you're loved. 
when your own life justly condemns you, you're loved. In Christ. Why? Because it has nothing to do with you in the first place. It's all about him. Actually, to deny God's love is actually quite the selfish thing. You know, we, we tend to think that it's a humble thing. Oh, I'm a poor, wretched, undeserving sinner, and that we are. But to deny the love of God in Christ is not an act of humility, it's an act of arrogance. Because it has nothing to do with you, so stop bringing yourself into it. It's Him. It's Him. You are His beloved. Live in that. Live in that. And I'm also glad that to be a pastor, you don't have to have victory over everything you preach, because I certainly don't have victory over that. Live in the reality you're loved. Even if you believe it or not, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Even if you feel it or not, salvation is not based on your feelings. It's based on the reality that in Christ, you're loved, period. Period. Second, what does he describe to the readers? They're the beloved of God. Then he says, we are preserved in Jesus Christ. Preserved in Jesus Christ. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. We could say that this is saying that believers in Christ are kept. They're kept. This is another verb, which is God acting upon us, actively keeping his people. Actively keeping his people. And in this action, we have the steadfast, loving grip of our Lord upon his children. And I would venture to say, if out of all the doctrines of Scripture, that this is one of the most, if not the most, comforting passage and comforting doctrine of Scripture. Christ eternal, everlasting, enduring, forever hold on those he saves. If you're in Christ, you cannot be out of Christ. Period. People say, and I know many of them, I love them dearly, very godly people, that somehow I can out the mercy of God and somehow be saved and then somehow lose that salvation. Two things, a sorry existence, because you never know. You never know. And two, it's really calling God a liar. Again, I don't say this to condemn. I love these people. I have Mennonite friends whom I dearly love, and they do believe that you can lose your salvation. Godly people, I love them dearly. But when it comes to their eternal security, they have no grounds of anything. And really, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you're placing the grounds of that salvation entirely on yourself. Because my salvation is infringent upon me staying in God's good graces by my life, which you can't do. You never did, you never can. It must be him starting the work, carrying out the work, finishing the work. It's all of him. If you can lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation in a heartbeat. The moment I got saved, about a minute later, I'd be lost. 
if I could lose my salvation. You have no hope. You have no hope. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 1.5? Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You are kept. You are held by God's divine, all-wise, sovereign, powerful hand. You cannot out God's power. No one, even yourself and your sin, is greater than God. No one. And if he's the one holding you, you have no fear. For all of eternally, you are kept. You're kept. It was his decision to start the work in the first place. It was his decision. It wasn't me, because if it was my decision, I would never do it. Why? Because I'm dead. And I hate him. So it was his decision, it was his work, and he'll be faithful to complete it. Through Christ's death on the cross, he purchased forgiveness of sin, the reality of eternal life, and the hope of the glorification of his Father followers. He starts it. He carries it through. He finishes it. Charles Spurgeon said this, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It's his hold of you. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. Why? For my love, it's often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. My love for Christ is like the waves of the sea. It ebbs and flows. It's on a high one moment and it's on a terrible low the other. That love is not good enough to keep me in his graces. He must hold me. He must hold me. There's nothing we could do for ourselves to be reconciled to God. But once God through Christ reconciles us to himself, there's nothing you can do to be out of God's favor. If you're in Christ, plainly said, you're going nowhere plainly said, let me just blatantly say it, you cannot lose your salvation. You can't. Those whom he calls, he also justifies. Those whom he justifies, he sanctifies. And those he sanctifies, he does glorify. It's a done deal. John, uh, the words of Jesus, John in uh, John 10, 27 through 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 1 Peter three eighteen, for Christ also once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, listen to this, that he might bring us to God. What was the purpose of dying that he might bring us to God? Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. John 6, 39. And this is the will of my Father which has sent me, that all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise him up on the last day. Romans 
8, 38 through 39, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things uh, present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, and if he didn't cover all of his bases anyways, Paul says, nor any other created thing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then finally, in our text, Jude 24, later in our text, which we will get to, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Live in this assurance. Live in it. Bask in it. The world, the flesh, nor the devil can snatch you out of his hand. You have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for you. That's why we sang this morning, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives to plead for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, which by the way is throughout all eternity, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I am welcome and I am held. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You're kept. Live in it. Live in it. You have a great high priest. Christ ever leads to plead the sacrifice that he made to the Father because he does eternally on your behalf, listen to this, you, it's not that you will not, it's not that you could not, you cannot be lost. You can't. The devil may accuse, which he does. The Bible tells us that the devil is ever before the throne of God accusing us, his people. And your own life at times justifies the accusations that the devil makes. He accuses not necessarily with lies. He accuses with things you do. You do. My life justly stands accused. But because Christ pleads on your behalf, you can't be lost. He pleads your sin. Christ pleads his sacrifice. So you can't be lost. You cost the Father way too much to let you go. You cost the father his son's life. You're bought with way too high a price to just let you go. Deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. I'll hold fast to the anchor. It'll never be removed. I justly stand accused before the father. But if he's pleading for me, I'm welcome. I'm welcome. And I can't be lost. You're preserved. You're kept. 
live in it. Live in the hope that you are held in the eternal grip of God that will never let you go. Never. I'd love to keep going, but I have to stop. So we see Jude, half-brother of Christ, slave of Christ. Hater of God turned slave to Christ. We as believers, slaves to Christ. He's our master. We're his servants. Who is he writing to? Those who are the beloved of God. You and I and this church are the objects of God's divine love. And in his love, he not only saves you, he keeps you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne. What a hope. What an assurance. Live in it. Live in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we praise you for the truths of your word. We praise you for the concrete truths of your word. We praise you for the fact that we are your objects of divine love and that it has nothing to do with our work or our merit or what we've done. It has everything to do with what you've done. And we praise you, Lord, for the fact that you keep us eternally in your loving grip to one day present us faultless before the throne of God where we will spend eternity of eternities with the Son forever, praising him for his great grace on our behalf. We praise you, Lord, for the truths that we have learned tonight. I pray that they have been a blessing, and I praise you, Lord, for helping me uh, teach your truth. Uh, go with us now as we uh, leave this place and uh, go to our individual places throughout the week. May we live lives that honor you and glorify you um, every day. For in Christ's name we pray.